0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Poetry for Peace in a Time of War, commemorating the fourth anniversary of the Iraq War, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 25th, 2007, the fifth Sunday in Lent. A few days ago, as I was walking our dog, my accountant friend Mike called to say that he had finished our 2006 taxes. He asked a few questions to clarify matters, we chatted about our kids, and then he advised me to contribute to my IRA in order to reduce my tax bill. As I walked home, I began to relish the thought of diverting money from the government. As we mark the fourth anniversary of the United States invasion of Iraq, March the 19th, 2003, simple arithmetic tells me that I've personally funded the war to the tune of about $1,300. So did my wife and three children. So did you and every one of our 300 million citizens. The war now costs about $2 billion per week, with more than 400 billion dollars spent so far. Some economists estimate that the true cost of the war will run into the trillions. It feels surreal to recall that the White House estimated that the war would cost 50 billion dollars max. That White House advisor Lawrence Lindsey was fired for saying the war might cost up to 200 billion. And that Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz and others assured us that Iraq oil revenues would underwrite the war for $50 billion a year. It's worse when you consider that according to the National Priorities Project, 28% of every tax dollar that you send to Washington goes to the military. By comparison, education receives 4%, housing 2%, veterans benefits 1.7%, and the environment, 1.4%. In 2005, the United States accounted for 48% of the entire world's military spending, down slightly from 2003, when we spent more on the military than the rest of the world combined. I've always wondered why we expect other countries to demilitarize, given the example that we set. To me, spending 28% of the federal budget on the military feels immoral. Then there are the human costs of the war. Death, mutilation, maiming, and injuries devastate not only bodies, but also human hearts, minds, lives, and spirits. As of March 7, 2007, there were 3,444 coalition deaths in Iraq. 23,000 Americans have been wounded. And with the Walter Reed scandal, we now know just how poorly our government cares for them. Nearly 20 times as many Iraqi civilians have died, about 60,000. The British medical journal Lancet. Lancet puts that figure at 10 times the, f- the amount, at $655,000. Two million Iraqis have fled their country, and another two million have been displaced from their homes inside the country. So in addition to the financial costs, as high as they are, we must never forget the far higher human cost of the Iraq war, The Iraq war has cost dearly in many other ways. We've alienated ourselves from our friends, militarized international diplomacy, and enraged our enemies. Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, Haditha, renditions, no-bid construction contracts, and domestic wiretaps have undermined the credibility of our commitment to human rights, rule of law, and democracy. The Iraq War has destabilized the greater Middle East region and supported the jihadist view of history that America wants to occupy, control, or destroy their Muslim countries. War critics have been harassed and caricatured as unpatriotic. We've believed dangerous misconceptions about American exceptionalism. With no exit strategy, no promise that we will not maintain permanent bases in Iraq, and Bush's statements that he'll pass the war on to his successor, there's no end in sight either. But perhaps these costs have been worth it. No, not according to most Iraqis. In November of 2006, the Iraq Center for Research and Strategic Studies conducted face-to-face interviews with 2,000 Iraqi adults in Baghdad, Anbar, and Najaf. When asked, do you feel that the situation in the country is better today or better before the U.S. invasion, 90% of the respondents said that their lives were better before the war. Here in America, over a year ago, even conservative commentators like William Buckley had concluded that, quote, one cannot doubt that the American objective in Iraq has failed. End quote. In November 2006, George Will wrote in Newsweek that, quote, many months ago it became obvious to all but the most ideologically blinkered that America is losing the war launched to deal with a chimeric problem, an arsenal of WMD, and to achieve a delusory goal, a democracy that would inspire emulation and transform the region. Former neoconservatives like Andrew Bacevich and Francis Fukuyama have written entire books to distance themselves from what they now regard as our catastrophic foreign policy. And finally, to take one more critic, in his new book, Second Chance, Three Presidents in the Crisis of American Superpower, Zvignu Brzezinski argues that the war is a what he calls suicidal statecraft. This week's Old Testament reading from Isaiah 43, 16-21 is actually a piece of war poetry that has as its context Israel's past domination by Pharaoh's Egypt and its then-present subjugation by the superpower Assyria. Isaiah reminds his readers that the Hebrew God was one who vanquished military violence in the past and that he would do so again We read in Isaiah 43 that Yahweh drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. And Isaiah goes on to dare his readers to imagine a new future of peace that he likens to streams in the parched desert. The war in Iraq and the peace poetry of Isaiah bring to mind the radical witnesses of four prophetic Christians, one of whom is ancient, three of whom are modern. They remind us that the priorities of church and state, throne and altar, are as different as parallel universes traveling in opposite directions. After the Emperor Theodosius slaughtered 7,000 people in Thessalonica, most unjustly and tyrannically, as Theodorus put it, Bishop Ambrose of Milan physically prevented him from entering his church. The Syrian bishop Theodoret recorded this drama in his book, Ecclesiastical History. Listen to Theodoret. You must not be dazzled by the splendor of the purple that you wear, thundered Ambrose to Theodosius. How could you lift in prayer hands which are stained with the blood of such an unjust massacre? Go away, and don't add to your guilt by committing a second crime. Emperor Theodosius submitted to the rebuke and with many tears and groans returned to his palace. End quote. "Ambrose later restored him after 30 days of public penance. When we moved to Moscow in September 1991, a defrocked dissident priest named Gleb Yakunin was grabbing headlines. During the Soviet period, Yakunin was a champion a champion of religious freedom." and a harsh critic of the Russian Orthodox Church's cooperation with the government. Because of his prophetic stance, he was barred from the priesthood, imprisoned for five years, banished to internal exile for another five years, and then finally released in 1987. After his release, he continued his outspoken criticisms as a political leader in Russia's emerging democracy and eventually was elected to the Parliament. When he published materials from the newly accessible KGB archives about church leaders who served as KGB agents and demanded that the Orthodox Church publicly repent, the patriarchy had had enough. And so, in 1997, it excommunicated Yakunin from the Church. Here in our own country, the peace activist and Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan, born in 1921, spent considerable time in prison for his civil disobedience against government policies on racism, nuclear arms, and most famously, Vietnam. In her memoir, Things Seen and Unseen, Nora Gallagher recalls meeting Berrigan in the spring of 1986. When she asked how many times he had been jailed, Berrigan responded, Not enough. And finally, Dan's younger brother, Philip Berrigan, nineteen twenty three to two thousand and two, also a Catholic priest, was arrested more than a hundred times and served a total of eleven years in prison for acting on his conviction that the gospel of Jesus constituted a higher law than the civil laws that he disobeyed on a regular basis. Listen to Philip Bergen. It's spelled out in Scripture. It couldn't possibly be more clear. It's spelled out in the wisdom of Isaiah with its injunction to beat swords into plowshares and to learn war no more. To be acceptable to God, it says, we must forsake our weapons, destroy them, live as brothers and sisters in peace and love. Christians do not hate. Christians do not kill. Christians love their enemies. It's difficult, but I do know that being a Christian is about nonviolence. It's about justice. It's about being outraged at the way we destroy each other. At one point, both the Berrigan brothers were on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list for their anti-war activities. Ambrose, Yakunin, and the two Berrigans remind us that if Jesus is Lord, then Pharaoh and Caesar are not Lord. Loving and praying for your neighbor, and especially for your enemy, subverts the will to war that would destroy them. And so, inspired by their examples, in a meager attempt to move beyond silence and apathy, Sunday, March the 18th, found me in San Francisco at the Justin Herman Plaza, where I joined other citizens protesting for peace in Iraq. And now for further reflection. Do you think the United States is more militaristic than other countries? If so, how and why? What are you feeling and thinking about our four years in Iraq? Number three, consider this conundrum. Jesus calls believers to do something that states and governments cannot and probably should not do, to love our enemies. Fourth, you might want to watch the documentary film Sir, No, Sir, about active duty soldiers who protested the Vietnam War. Five, consider the book by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Second Chance, Three Presidents in the Crisis of American Superpower, newly published in 2007. And finally, I'd like to recommend three films that have come out of Iraq and are made by Iraqi filmmakers. Turtles Can Fly, The Dreams of Sparrows, and then finally Control Room. I obtained all three films at Hollywood Video. For books this week, I review E.O. Wilson, The Creation, An Appeal to Save Life on Earth, New York, W. W. Norton, 2006, 175 pages. Harvard's renowned entomologist Edward Wilson was born in Alabama and raised in the evangelical faith of the Southern Baptists, a faith that he rejected long ago in favor of what in this book he calls quote-unquote secular humanism. So there's a personal history behind his decision to craft this book as a long letter written to a fictional pastor, asking the pastor to set aside their important differences in order to join forces in a common cause. The stakes are high, says Wilson, for, quote, the fate of the creation is the fate of humanity. And right now, creation is in deep distress. As the two most powerful forces in society, he says, religion and science can act as a tremendous force for good. To the extent that religion neglects the earthly present in order to emphasize a heavenly future, and as a consequence abuses creation, Wilson blames religion for many of our environmental woes. And his History of Humankind reads something like a long, slow march from superstition due to religion, to liberation thanks to science. But in his better moments, he's just as wary of scientific and technical optimism as he he is of religious pessimism. He calls this exemptionalism that denies our environmental crisis and it's something that he fears most of all. Whereas the Earth's genetic heritage has taken tens of millions of years to evolve, Our cultural heritage has developed swiftly with catastrophic consequences. Earth's biodiversity is vanishing at an astonishing pace due to the destruction of habitats, global warming, the spread of alien species, pollution, and overpopulation. And this, Wilson reminds us, is only what we do know, quote, we don't know what is happening to most of the rest of life because we don't even know what it is. We don't need a moon base or a man trip to Mars. We need an expedition to planet Earth where probably fewer than 10% of the life forms are known to science and fewer than 1% of those have been studied beyond a simple anatomical description and a few notes on natural history, end quote. Across 17 very short chapters, Wilson sketches why and how this has happened along with the projected consequences for our failure to act. He also laments current science education and suggests how we might improve it. I especially enjoyed his personal anecdotes, how, for example, he recalled his first microscope at the age of eight, and three important university mentors bequeathed to him a passion for science. If various news reports are accurate, at long last evangelical Christians, those whom Wilson left long ago, are beginning to get the message about the environmental crisis and joining scientists like him in what he calls in his last chapter a, quote, alliance for life. If true, and let us hope that it is, that would be good news about the good news. E.O. Wilson, The Creation, an appeal to save life on Earth. For film this week I review an Austrian film named Antares from the year 2004. Antares is one of the brightest stars in the night sky but everyone in this film flames out into darkness. As I watched the lives of three dysfunctional couples deconstruct, my mind wandered to the wisdom of the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, who once remarked, Be kind to all, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. All three couples in this film are trapped in the same drab high-rise apartments that serve as metaphors for their interior landscapes. The bored nurse, Eva, has an affair with an out-of-town doctor, but despite their torrid love affair, she doesn't even remember the man's last name. Nor do we ever learn her husband's name. The young and needy checkout clerk, Sonia, fakes a pregnancy to persuade her cheating boyfriend, Marco, to marry her. He's an immigrant laborer from Yugoslavia, injecting not only class consciousness, but ethnicity and immigration into the film. Despite her efforts to free herself, domestic violence traps Nicole with the jealous and abusive Alex, the third couple. In twists of fate that are more bizarre than important to the plot, the lives of these six people crash and collide, but only a ship's passing in the night. In the end, Austrian angst buries everyone. In German, with English subtitles, Antares, from the year 2004. And finally, for this Lenten season, for poetry, we've posted a poem by the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova who lived from 1889 to 1996, 1966. The title of Akhmatova's poem is Crucifixion. Weep not for me, mother. In the grave I have life. The choir of angels glorified the great hour. The heavens melted in flames. He said to his father, Why hast thou forsaken me? And to his mother, Oh, weep not for me. Mary Magdalene smote her breast and wept. The disciple whom he loved turned to stone. But where the mother stood in silence, nobody even dared look. Crucifixion by Anna Akhmatova. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 25th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.